Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the DevOps Speakeasy. I am your host, Kat Cosgrove, here without my co-host. It's my show. I'm in control. Who knows what I'll happen with, uh, without my boss here as a co-host. I have a guest today, Matt Stratton from Red Hat. Matt, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. I always like being a guest on a podcast because I feel like when you're hosting a podcast, you've got a lot of work to do and you're paying attention to stuff. And when you're a guest, you just show up and talk until they say, hey, you know what? Shut up. It's true. It's It's more fun being a guest. It's so much more fun being a guest. So I'm glad I could give you that break today. I hope you haven't uh, had too much stress figuring out what to talk about. We don't have oh, rules I, here. Oh, I had a lot. That was That's the irony of this with my whole like, oh, it's great to be a guest. You can just show up for like the last 45 minutes. I've been texting Kat going, I don't know. What are we going to talk about? Are we prepared? Do I need anything? Do I whatever? Because, you know, I figured the like listeners, when people are asked to be on this podcast, they get like a Calendly link that has uh, a questionnaire in it with some things about like, what can you not talk about? What do you want to talk about? What do you think makes you look good, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I thought that was enough, but I guess Matt is like just anxious enough that it uh, fueled 45 minutes of furious texting. I also feel like if I recall correctly, I probably left half of that form blank anyway when I <laughs> was you did. like, yeah, yeah. yeah, you didn't, you didn't fill that shit out, my dude. <laughs> I got, I got anxious at the wrong time is what we're talking about. So yeah, anxious at the wrong time. And I think we're all anxious at the wrong time these days. I am, which is uh, why Twitter has become just like uh, intrusive tech thoughts for me lately, which followers like, but maybe it's not healthy. So intrusive, like they're the tech thoughts that intrude in your brain and you put them on Twitter or you're trying to intrude your thoughts into (laughs) the zeitgeist? Well, both, right? (laughs) Don't you think like the nature of Twitter when you're in developer relations is that, that you are trying to intrude your thoughts upon others, right? So... It's kind of both. They're my intrusive thoughts, but I am intruding upon my followers. And some of my followers have intruded upon me for the last three days by arguing about GitOps in my replies. GitOps has been around in some form for a while. The pieces of it have been there. People have achieved the goal of GitOps. But the term is new, and as a complete package, it's new. Maddie, what do you think about GitOps and the last three days of GitOps discourse? Well, what I'm wondering is if I actually even understand what we're talking about. Because to me, my understanding, and some of this can be a little antiquated because I am an old, is I always thought that GitOps sort of referred to that your operational things you would do were driven by Mm -hmm. actions and source control, that I commit something to a repo and that commit makes a thing happen. Right. You know, I mean, it, it's it's a change. It's, I mean, it to me, a lot of this just is I'm like, isn't this just infrastructure as code? And I'm not trying to like simplify because I think there's more to it. And that's what I want to dig into, because I feel like this is something we've been doing. And this is very true of everything in tech. Everything old is new again, whether it came from even us reinventing things that other industries did and deciding we created them. But totally, I I kind of and I will admit that I conflate in my head and they have nothing to do with each other. Chat ops and get ops. I mean, they're they're slightly similar. It's some type of automation from some external thing, some process, whether it's something in a Slack bot or a commit. But I think back and I'm like, yeah, this was kind of like the workflow of Puppet was because I remember when I first started using Puppet, like if I wanted 
to get a change onto my nodes, I used Git to put it into the the repo where uh, the puppet modules were, and then that made everything happen. Now, I suspect from the arguing I'm seeing on the Twitters and the fact that this is a conversation is that it's a little more than that simple. You do something in a in get in a repo and that triggers a change in your infrastructure. Or is that really all we're talking about? I'm curious. At this point, frankly, I can't tell. I had the same interpretation of GitOps as you before this argument broke out. And it turns out it is much more nuanced than uh, than I thought. And people have very strong opinions about it to the point where like some of those people are getting really angry. Uh, I will link the tweet thread in the show notes so that you can go read this for yourself. But it's it's gotten very involved and uh, emotional. <laughs> There's more history to it than I thought. But in my opinion, the, the history of the things that make up GitOps don't negate the fact that GitOps is a thing now, just like the pieces of DevOps have existed for decades. But so, DevOps is still a thing. Sure. And so, so what I wonder with GitOps is that, again, the core idea is not anything terribly new, but maybe the systems and the technologies we have available to us lend themselves to it much better, right? If you're talking about managing a Kubernetes cluster and managing your pods and things like that, that all lends itself because of its nature much easier uh, because it's just easier to automate and it's easier to automate through just plain old config versus when I was was hustling chef, you know, a lot of it was trying to bend systems to your will because they didn't want to be automated. And so things like GitOps, if your core underlying infra doesn't have that as a first principle, you're kind of going through an abstraction to get there no pun intended <laughs> but if you're if you're talking about something that kind of even you know a system that was built that came up in its dna with this kind of idea of infrastructure as co- you know think about it this way with something like kubernetes and I'm this is oversimplification the infrastructure is code so to speak it's just been built yeah, because it it's always existed when that was a thing we did that was not true for core linux right that's not true for windows right they didn't come from that and even to the point that one of one of the things that I thought was interesting is when you think about where that difference comes in and when you want to reason about how we do this config, something Jeffrey Snover said on a podcast a very long time ago, but really struck with me when he came and joined Microsoft and started running Windows Server before he invented PowerShell and all that stuff. Uh, one of the things he came from a Unix background and, and, and the thing that he uh, said is you look at like a Nix based operating system versus Windows in Nix, everything's a file. In Windows, everything's an API. So one of those things lends itself better to a document-based automation like a source control type thing. You can't version a date. That's the thing in a lot of stuff in Windows Server. Things lived in a database on the server. You can't put the registry in Git, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's and nor should you try, by the way. I'm sure someone will, will tell oh, me how you can. Try. Uh, but then you take that to the next even further when you think about something like K8s. It's like it's got that as a first principle. So I think that that's where it's like, yes, this is not anything terribly new, but you don't have to fight the system so hard to do GitOps in this new way because it's part of the of that first principle. But again, like you said, none of this is terribly new. Um, I think 
it's got more adoption, like, because also people are more used to the idea, you know, 10 years ago, you're trying to preach this. You had system engineers that didn't work in version control at all. Like there was just a whole different thing. And now it's a little bit more of what we're used to. Uh, but I don't think that the practices of GitOps have terribly changed. It's the systems are better equipped for them, maybe. Yeah, the systems are better at it. It's it's easier to do. And a ton of products that take the world by storm or take an industry by storm are a result of somebody looking at the way we're doing things currently, looking at us like gluing a bunch of systems together with like shitty Python scripts and five different products to kind of make something work a little bit easier and saying, oh, what if we had something that just did all of this? And then you get GitOps or DevOps or cloud CICD or whatever. Those things come from looking at us do something, try to achieve something, and it's a lot of trouble and saying, what if we made this less of a pain in the ass? And I think that's all GitOps has done. And that's fine. It feels weird to get so heated about it's just config management and I don't want to. Well, so what if it is? That's my other thing. I'm like, so what? Right. Cool. Great. Uh, You know, everything's it's, you know, turtles all the way down. Right. You go far enough down, you come back down to the same first principles. So who really cares where it started? And I think I think one of the things in that thread that that starts to happen, too, and this is generally what happens when you go down this kind of archaeology of the vastly ancient 10-year-old industry we ha- we're talking about here, I-, I think as humans, we find stories interesting, right? And I think that's what draws in, um, not, not to kind of go on a different tangent, but I think this applies. I struggle really hard with the cognitive dissonance of not wanting to be a gatekeeper, not wanting to f- make people who are who are newer to this feel excluded, but I also sure as shit love to talk about old scuzzy termination stories and bullshit data center stories and all this, there can be a a gatekeeping effect of that. And I think it's also just partially how people feel, right? Like we, we like to tell those stories, you know, and everybody has them. I don't care how old, well, you have to be a certain age because if you're like my kid's (laughs) age, like I don't want to hear them talk about how they remember how things were back in, you know, 2014, you know, in the old days, but every generation has its history. And it's a shared history, and we f- we like to feel that we belong to something. And so I think the tricky part, and I'm going to see how I paint myself in a corner here, mm. is how can you feel inclusive with people who have a shared history, but not be exclusive? Like, I'm going to be able to talk and tell stories that people who were building systems in the 90s will appreciate and and because that's the thing cuz almost especially jokes jokes are where it gets really hard because jokes always come from a common frame of reference right so that's also why it can be really tricky to not exclude people when you're making your jokes because every joke is an inside joke it just depends upon the size sometimes it's an inside joke among all of humanity and sometimes it's among you know all of Americans or all you know dudes or all people who live in Chicago or all people who ran Solaris or whatever right you know and so I think, it, like I said, this is where that cognitive dissonance comes in because I enjoy that. Like, Kat, you and I, we have jokes that have people jokes. outside, yeah, that other it people would, would be like, it. yeah. And I think that's okay. It's fine. Yeah. As long as that's not all you do, right? And, and if you can welcome people in. So I guess that's what I was getting to with that thread is that it does go back to that, like, 
And especially now when they start tagging in people that were part of that really early days of modern config management, which is still funny to me to think about chef and puppet as, as modern config management. And I look, I just did that thing I said I didn't want to do, but because, it, but it's funny because it's not that old. I remember, and I talked, I've talked to, you know, heard Adam Jacob who, who created chef say this before. He's like, there is a certain very small subset of people that did what they did. You know, it was, Mark Burgess and Adam Jacob and Luke Cadiz were like, they were a small peer group of people that were trying to change the entire way we did configuration in that one small thing. So there's a certain amount of connection to that, whether they, you know, people like each other or not. But then I feel like it's okay to do that and then move on, right? To be like, okay, cool. So this is, I mean, that's why I think it could be in a, in a thread like that. It could be interesting to say like, oh, and, and to me, I think it's interesting to be like, this is a thing we tried to do you know, eight years ago and just the systems weren't there or there were reasons. It was an experiment. It was a thing. And it's interesting to sort of think about. But then at a certain point, then you're like, okay, cool. Now let's talk about what we're doing now, right? Rather than sometimes you go down this like, wow, we've been doing this the whole time. And I don't see it's just all, you know, because you know what all that shit is? It's just, I mean, Adam said he made a good point where he's like, it's all just where you put the loop. Like all of these systems are just a loop. And it just, all we're doing is moving the loop around. So the core ideas, like you said, Kat, they haven't changed. So it's 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 tricky. It also gets into a little bit of like, dare I say, Twitter etiquette or whatever about <laughs> at a certain point. Yeah. Whereas if you're going to go off on your own little nostalgia reminiscing about you know the DevOps of the of the early teens or whatever, what do we call that? What what is that decade called? Uh, ooh, the so one we just left. Ooh, I I've been saying 2010s, but I don't think the there's 2010s? a hand, I don't think there's a handy name for it. Like there, like some people say aughts. Well, that's right, but that's but I, up but until that's for the, the 2009. The yeah, yeah. So but I, I mean, even in the 1900, like when I think about that, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you call that decade. Like obviously, we're in the. I mean, it's funny yeah. to say we're in the 20s right now. By the way, yeah. welcome to the 20s. Welcome to the 20s. Yeah, it's not Jeez, it's not good yeah. here. But yeah, if you're gonna go down that, maybe like yeah, untag people. A little bit because they don't care anymore. And I, I I try to do that. I do as many things I try to do on Twitter and I mostly fail, you know, but if I kind of feel like, okay, we're going off on our own thing, I'm going to probably stop keeping everybody in the replies because it's not their jam anymore. Yeah. Cause eventually it also gets to a point where there's like nine goddamn people being tagged in your tweet and they don't care. They super don't care. And it's sometimes like actively irritating, like, I have to mute that thread now because I've got three days of a bunch of nerds arguing about the history of fucking GitOps. And I almost feel like, except I'm not in it, so it would, it would just be sort of redirecting, but maybe maybe that's a thing that people could do for each other when you know when your friend is in a th- Twitter thread and you know they're getting exhaustion from it. Like, you could reply in, but untag your friend, but hopefully see if you can pull that. Oh, yeah, redirect the argument. I yeah. don't, yeah, I don't even think redirect the argument. I just mean like do a reply, but yeah. hopefully, but then everybody would have to start replying to you. So it'd have to be really good. I feel like this is a skill that is worth developing. That that might be, hmm, hmm. I don't know, Maddie, go try it. See if you can, <laughs> see if you can redirect all of that into your mentions and you can deal with uh, four people screeching in your mentions. But I do think the history is important. You know, I spend a lot of time at conferences, well, virtual conferences, talking about uh, like an entry level DevOps. I do a lot of DevOps 101s and it's gotten to a point where it's it's very focused. It's very specific. I'll talk 
for 40 minutes specifically about CICD or package management or whatever. And the talks are so long and so specific because I go into the history of these things. Like, what were we doing before this existed as a concept? When did it first start to become a thing? How did it evolve? And how did it get to a point where we need the specific tools and abstractions that we need now? Because I do think that that context is important for like truly understanding why we use these tools. And that kind of eliminates some of the gatekeepy aspect of talking about the past. You know, it's interesting because I and I think that's a fine line to be able to walk because there are the things where, yes, you want to understand why you got here. And then there's also the things where it's like it's just academic and that could be it's, interesting. Yeah. It's right? interesting, it's, but not is, this, is it because it's interesting or is it because it helps your understanding? And I, I, I think about things like, um, quote unquote, analog photography and filmmaking and also digital there's a lot of things. I think a little bit of it is the skeuomorphism that comes into things like Photoshop and Final Cut. Like all, it's all still around the concepts of uh, of working in a dark room. But like, there's things in Photoshop that 100% make sense to me because I've been in a dark room. Now, I would also make the argument that that is a failing on Photoshop's part, in a way, because you shouldn't have to know that. Like a lot of the tools, like Dodge and Burn. Do you know why Dodge and Burn is called Dodge and Burn? It has underhand has to do with chemicals and being in a physical dark room. Nothing to do with what you're actually doing, right? So that's tricky, and I think we do that in, in t- just because skeuomorphism has a value, though. It does. Like, but then it hits the point when when does it stop being valuable? Because then you run into the like, oh, it's a 3D printed object of the save button, right? Like, it is not valuable. It doesn't help anybody who's using computers today to understand what save means to see something that nobody's had on their computer for 20 years, right? You know, like a, a floppy disk. I'm trying to think of the last time I have a USB 20 years. Yeah. yeah. I have a USB floppy drive. Uh, It's a combination USB floppy and optical drive. Cause I actually haven't had a computer with an optical drive in, in maybe 10 years either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's been about a decade. Like you don't need to know that the first person to propose the concept of continuous integration was Grady Booch. And you don't need to know that that happened in his book from 1993 in order to use, understand and appreciate CI. What is useful historically is to uh, hear about how we went from like extreme programming to agile and how like that evolved the way we think of CICD because Booch didn't recommend that we deploy 30 times a day, you know, but extreme programming did. And it just evolved from there. That's helpful to understand like the scale of the way things have changed, you know, where it used to be, we release once a year to we release dozens of times a day, maybe that's useful. The, man who coined the term and when in his book, you don't need that. It's just interesting. Yeah, it's academic. It's interesting. And yeah. I think I think it's good to know where things came from because it helps shortcut away from wanting to go back to that, right? There's definitely benefits of continuous delivery. There's definitely benefits yeah. a lot of this stuff, but it also could strike someone as like, wow, this is a lot of bullshit, right? Yeah. You know, like, why do I have to do this? Why can't I just do this? Wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it be great if we... I mean, this is the thing. I, I guarantee that the pendulum swing, right? Now you've got people that are coming up that haven't gone through that would be like, oh my God, it's such a pain that we're deploying all the time. Can't we slow this shit down? 
wouldn't it be great if we could just boil all these releases together and release them like once a quarter? You know, and it'd be like, no, but here's why. Because we did it that way and it introduced all these other things. And you don't have to like spend a ton of time because sometimes just knowing that like. Knowing was, that we have tried this before. Right. And it right. ended poorly. Maybe enough. But I will say that I don't adhere to like DevOps best practices in my personal development. Do I have like a cloud CI tool that I use for like personal projects? Yes. Am I like cramming all of my updates and features and shit into a single pull request and deploying it all at once, once a year? Hell yeah. Oh, I used to, I used to say, I'd be like what I tell my, oh yes, you should use chef, do everything. What do I do on my own server? Apt install Nginx, right? Like just get a package on there. And that's the thing. It's like, do the thing that gets you where you got to go. For sure. And and it was, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. But Aaron Kalen, I was watching his Twitch yesterday and he he quoted a mantra, which was the first you, oh, it's like for, first you, 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 you basically it was first you get it to work, then you do it right. Oh, you know, yeah. it's uh, yeah, the uh, make it work from Project make, yeah. Runway. Make it work. Yeah, yeah, gun, yeah. Every time make it work. But but it was yeah, it was oh, I, I, can't, I can't. It was a better it was there was a turn of phrase that was like first you you make it. Yeah. And it's and, and the thing is, it's like. Yes, but also it's really good to have your eyes open. Like you are making a conscious choice. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I don't need all I'm this doing. other stuff, right? So that's why that's where those 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 principles come in. And I think one of the things that's tricky is when you're teaching and when you're trying to learn. Everybody wants to go to the tools first because you know for several reasons. One is it's more fun. Cool, I get it. Right? You know, tech is fun. You know, it can be. Also, because you're trying to solve a problem, right? You want to be able, you want to have like something actionable, something that happens. Whereas if you're talking about principles, you're going to talk a lot for a couple of days and you're not going to actually see anything light up or do anything. And you're going to be like, okay. So I think there's a lot to do with kind of how we teach and how I think it's, you know, how you get those, those uh, underlying principles and underlying vocabulary, because if you skip that, Yes, you'll be able to get a few things going pretty good. But then when you try to go to the kind of the next level, you're going to be there. And there's tools that I've seen where they're very, very quick adoption, you know, versus other ones. That was actually one of the things I'm not I don't want to get into a whole tools thing, especially because now I work for Red Hat and we own Ansible. So I shouldn't shit talk Ansible. I can shit talk Ansible. Sure. And this isn't really shit talking Ansible. It's just sort of a difference that we ran into is with Chef. It took a little while before you could like there was uh, that what we would call time to first delight was a little long. You had to learn a bunch of stuff before you could be like, okay, but I just want to install Nginx. Why is this so hard? Whereas with Ansible, it was like, I did a thing. But then the problem that people would run into, and again, this is, I'm talking a few years, more than a few years ago. So the landscape is different, but I I want to use this not not to talk about specific tools, but about a difference. Then you run out of runway, right? You're like, okay, cool. It was, I was able to make a thing happen. And I think this also goes into like how, like teaching in a really practical way about thinking about a real world problem as well. I was, I actually had Shelby Spees on my show uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about teaching and learning. And yeah. And like uh, one of the things that drives me bananas is how much, well, it's it for all, all practical purposes, hello world stuff, which is like, okay, well, here's how you do this thing with this framework and to get started. It's not useful. And, and it, right, and it's not in the context that even makes sense to me because I guarantee no one has ever had the problem of making something say "Hello World," right? Right. You know, you always have a slightly little bit more to go to that. And I think when you have your tutorials for your product, 
that aren't in a in a problem set that someone would have. So like maybe you've got a GitOps tool that helps you configure, you know, your cloud providers and stuff like that. And your tutorial is going to be like, here's how to configure an S3 bucket. Okay, that's not an actual problem that people have. The problem is not configure an S3 bucket. The problem is store some files somewhere as part of another thing. So if you teach me the story in that context, then it makes sense because, again, my boss is not going to come to me and be like, okay, well, we have this for the business need. We have to configure an S3 bucket. No, that actually is part of another story. And is that more work? Yeah, absolutely. Ton of work. You know, but I think you that's You get better where... results. It's more valuable. And like that's why my DevOps 101 workshop does so well because I start with like, here is how you manually deploy a Docker image to Artifactory using it as a pull-through cache for Docker Hub. This is a real thing you're going to want to do. Here's how you resolve it if you want. Here's how you set up vulnerability detection. And here's how you define a CI pipeline that's going to automate all of that manual deployment for you. And oh, look, it's also going to fail your build because, oh, no, you have a terrible vulnerability in this Docker container I gave you. It's a very real example of something that practically you are going to want to set up if you're using these things in your actual job. And it's more it's more useful that people can just rip my code straight out of it and take it to work. And that's fine. Please do that. I think telling it in a narrative rather than an abstract is also really helpful. Like in that case with the vulnerability scanning to sort of walk through and be like, okay, so let's imagine, you know, that, okay, you push this in, it goes, it goes, it goes. And now you've moved on to something else and it's time for that to be released. And now the vulnerability is discovered depending upon how that works. You could even walk through like how you would have to deal with that and then go like, Mm -hmm. let's try it this way. Oh shit. Look, I found out like seconds after I clicked save that I have a vulnerability I've got my context. I know what I was doing. You know, like, I think a lot of these ideas, I don't think that people have to like experience them to understand. I think you could tell anybody, even if they aren't an engineer or even in the tech industry at all, like the closer to introduction of a defect, the easier it is to fix. That just makes sense. Yeah, it just but, makes it, sense. but it's visceral once you've done it. And, and it's great if that can happen, not in real life. Yeah. Right? I'm, like, I manufacture a disaster, you know? That's good. And the the best comparison for any of these like disaster vulnerability things uh, for me is always like the Equifax breach. You know, that was a vulnerability that was known for months before they were breached. So it's, it's a good story that unfortunately impacted a shitload of people. So we can all relate to that pain. I, I don't typically like the scare tactic style of storytelling, but in this case, it's, it's very, it's very effective. And I think that's the thing is like, and this go this can this can go into a lot of different places about when you think about like phishing tests and a bunch of other bullshit about like yeah. you you don't educate by tricking someone or Rest. by introducing stress. So I um back when I was more on the incident response and 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 kind of kind of tech, so I had had a talk that I gave a lot that was about the psychological impact of like outages and like why you run game days the way you do. And the reason I bring this up is like one thing that would happen often is when you talk about doing some type of a game day or failure injection, uh, the argument will come up to be like that the people who are engaging in it, don't tell them what's going to be wrong. Like they shouldn't be involved in the planning because you want to, you want to, you want to kind of trick them. So they have practice of troubleshooting under stress and everything. I was like, you don't need to give people practice under stress. They get enough stress already. And I was saying that, before the panty, 
right? <laughs> so it's even more now. Trust me, what you actually want is the exact opposite. You want to create the association of calm with doing the things you will do during that event. Because the beautiful thing is our human brains are very complex and intelligent, and they're also really kind of dumb and pretty easy to trick. Oh, we're and we can trick yeah. our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system into making that association. So similarly, if it's like, okay, all my vulnerability that I'm dealing with and I'm doing this, like I'm going through those same motions in a very controlled, calm classroom quote situation. When it does happen, it doesn't mean that you're going to be like a cool zebra that's chill like a cucumber. Like you're going to be stressed, but you're going to be less stressed because you have this association and this practice. So I think there's a lot of things that the more that you normalize, it sounds backwards, but normalizing bad shit in a way, in, in this way only, I don't mean normalizing people <laughs> being abusive or shitty or whatever like that, but normalizing things that going wrong at work, going wrong at work, just to the fact that you associate that with, this is just what we do, right? It's fine. I know because then you can go through those motions and it will. It, it has an absolute effect. So I think that goes all the way back to just even when we're learning. So if it's always part of it, you're not trying to bolt these ideas on in the middle of stress. You know, it's it's been part of it the whole time. Yeah. In uh, in normalizing bad things, I say this in maybe like eighty percent of my talks. In defense of CD, meaning continuous deployment instead of continuous delivery. You are absolutely, without a doubt, whether a human is involved in pressing the deploy button or not, you are going to deploy a bad update eventually. It is going to happen. You are not perfect. Nobody on your team is perfect. Your QA is not perfect. You're going to deploy a bad update. And a human pressing deploy does not reduce your rate of bad deploys. What matters is how quickly you can respond to it. So accept that the bad deploy is going to happen and do what you can to ensure that you can roll it back or patch it really, really, really fast. And it's fine. That you know how to restore service. I mean, because yeah. that's the thing. It's, I mean, number one, yes, there is going to be some type of misconfigured code. Something's going to happen for that. But even that, it's our systems are in a constant state of degradation. They're complex systems. Yep. You can't predict anything even before microservice land like i remember working for dot-com and everything was great in qa and everything like that and then it went into production and google became a th right you know what i mean like because you don't have the google bot crawling you in qa yeah and so things happen just because of that or your users will just do shit that you would you never think they would the users gonna do users are users are unpredictable they're children hopped up on mountain dew they're going to click on stuff and you can't right. predict or, it. Or they're just going to have a certain combination of ISP plus browser plus OS plus use case plus whatever. So like so much of this comes down to, and this, this applies to when you're thinking about testing your systems, when you're thinking about changing your organization, you are not going to think of everything. So no matter how hard you try, you're still going to miss something. So you might as well start trying. You know, that was that thing I talk about. Anytime I talk about transformation, because I'll work with these large enterprises and because of the way risk profiles are built, they, you know, feel like it's the, you know, I always say it's the, you know, measure 20 times cut once. And or if you want to sort of like uh, pull a Pulp Fiction reference, you want to think about all the motherfucking ifs, right? <laughs> well, you're not gonna get all the ifs. So you might as well just accept that. 
and start small and start doing things. And the same thing, the sooner that you think about the fact that, like you said, bad deploys are going to happen, shit's going to break, complex systems are, and and this is if you, uh, there's a, a really great paper that Dr. Richard Cook wrote called How Complex Systems Fail. And I call it a paper. It's an easy read. Check it out. And it's really easy. You go to how.complexsystems.fail. And there's a lot of great ideas in there. But one of them is that our systems are actually really well defended against fail- against simple failure. So when we have failure, it's a complex thing that caused it, right? It's not, yes, sometimes it is bad updates. And I'm not, I don't want to just diminish on that, but we're well protected against that. Usually we know how to roll that forward. We know how to, we're going to probably find that. But the real interesting failures for our system to fail catastrophically, it's going to be something very complicated with multiple contributing factors because they're generally well defended against simple failure. And when you think that way, your systems will be built in a defensive way around that as well. It has to do with how we think about restoring service, how we think about learning. But also, if we just sort of assume that shit's going to be broken, because it is, it in is. ways that we don't know. And and I got, again, I got news for you. Any any system out there right now that even if you think it's humming along and your, shit's broken. your single pane of glass is like green as shit, there's a bunch of broken stuff happening in there. And that's <laughs> fine. Totally cool, right? Don't even sweat it, right? It's it's good. It's manageable. It's handleable. So, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. But also, the 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 reason that I also go to that is not only is it just accept it because it's just an eventuality, but if you feel like you could, like it's possible to catch everything, when you don't catch anything, you're going to be in a false sense of security. You're going to be like, okay, well, we like got 100% test coverage, so... We're cool, so we don't have to think about having really good incident response and getting people involved in doing all that because no shit gets into prod unless it is blessed and the CCRB <laughs> did it and all the lights are green. And you know what? Even then, it's probably going to still break. So move your your thinking about, again, it's like, Kat, like you said, it's not the if, it's the when. When this stuff happens, it's going to happen. It's just a thing we do and we deal with it and we move on with our lives and we continue. And it's all just part of, of operation. Right. And that's not op, that's operation. Like that's just the way the business works. That's a thing we do. So it, it just is. So don't give in to fear, but also don't let hubris take control. And like there's a there's a, a tightrope you have to walk there between fear and hubris. And it's not even really a tightrope at this point. It's a it's fucking it's a big wide paved sidewalk now. Yeah. Like <laughs> It's pretty easy to stay on the side away from, from, yeah, it's, you got lots of room. You got some, some, some space. The hubris thing is that comes up in a lot of places. I had a, I had a talk I wrote once that was all because I was annoyed at some sysadmins at this enterprise I was working with. And it was, it wasn't called this, but in my head, it was called the hubris of the sysadmin. And (laughs) And again, just so every, I, I haven't really talked about anything like your, your listeners may not know, but like I come from an ops background. So I worked in tech ops for a couple decades before, you know, I went to the vendor side and everything like that. So, so my background is definitely ops, which also makes me feel like I can talk shit about ops um, because <laughs> I know. And trust me, there's like, you know, I mean, everybody's terrible in their own special way, but ops definitely believe, like I was like, there's nothing mystical that happens because of your job title, right? Like your job title does not bestow knowledge. So a lot of in traditionally sysadmin and ops would be like, Oh my God, I can't give cat the developer root access because she'll fuck shit up because she's not a sysadmin. Like, oh, yeah, I'm too dumb. You know, be, because sure. I'm like your, your title of sysadmin does not prevent you from fat fingering a command. And the thing that I find interesting is every one of those ops people 
that I would talk to that would be like, oh my God, I can't. The devs would, they would just break shit because they don't know what they're doing. And they, you know, or not even because they wouldn't even say that. They would just say they would break shit because they don't know what I know. You take them out for a couple pints, they will all have great stories about when they completely fucked up prod by fat fingering a command or making a mistake because everybody does it. Everyone does it. And that's the thing. And and people will be like, oh, it's separation of duties or whatever. I'm like, no, it really is this hubris belief that developers are children. And as, as, uh, as Sasha Bates has said, if you treat developers like children, they will act like children. And, <laughs> you know, so it's, and, and that's the whole thing. And like, none of this is, should be antagonistic, but we feel like it is also because of how our incentives and our structures are built. And this all goes down into Taylorism and about how management works and it's everything and the root cause is capitalism, Right. That's the only root cause, by the way, or yeah. the Big Bang. Actually, the real, real, only real root cause is the Big Bang. So, but we're not going to talk about root cause contributing factors because we don't have that much time. That's a whole other show. Ultimately, yes, the Big Bang is uh, the root cause, but I'm comfortable blaming it on capitalism. And I'm glad Baruch's not here to hear me say that, but he will hear it when he listens to this episode and I'll have to deal with it. But that is later Cat's problem, not today Cat's <laughs> <Yeah>. problem. <laughs> so thank you for joining me, Maddie. Where so can to put a, to put a bow you? on it, it's not about if your boss gets mad at you, but when. But when, yeah, <laughs> but when, because he's gonna, but... You know, I don't have to deal with that today. Maddie, where can people find you online? Uh, you can, your probably best bet is uh, to find me on Twitter. I'm at Matt Stratton. Uh, if you are into funny things, I run an online game show a couple times a month called DevOps Party Games. Kat is actually currently at the top of our thought leaderboard it's for true. that. So, uh, but you, know, you can check that out. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can just search for Matt Stratton. Um, those are Those are probably your best bets. I'm uh, definitely around for, you know, talking trash about DevOps on Twitter. But also, if you have non-trash talking topics or questions, especially in the areas of resilience or cultural change or just even talking some old school ops, hit me up. All right. Is that, is that, is that, did that make me sound hip when I said hit me up? Um, you, did, you did good. Okay. Buddy. <laughs> You're doing great, Maddie. You're doing right. great. I didn't say peeps. You didn't say peeps. You did say peeps the other day, but you did not say peeps this time. Thanks again for coming. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you in the next episode or on Twitter.